0: Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful.
1: Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. In this episode, I'm speaking with yoga teacher and all-round wise human, Karina Guthrie. I'd been thinking about this podcast idea for many months, and somehow I'd built it up to be this intimidating project, almost aiming for perfection before I'd even started. So, this conversation was an experiment in beginning before I felt ready. I dared myself to begin and trust that things would fall into place. And had the microphone been much closer, you probably could have heard the racing of my heartbeat as I hit record. But the nerves faded quickly, and I became fascinated by Karina's story. We covered a lot of ground touching on why her parents would confiscate abridged books from her as a child, uh, the difference between knowledge and lived wisdom. The book that she would love to write one day, her favorite untranslatable words, and her thoughts on yoga as a spiritual technology for reconnecting us with the bigness of the universe. So without further ado, here I give you this conversation with Karina Guthrie. So I'm here with Karina Guthrie, and she's one of my amazing yoga teachers during the teacher training that I did in Bali last summer. And I actually remember being here in this this amazing Sharla space uh, last June and it's this incredible bamboo architectural work of of genius and there's palm trees in the distance and it feels like kind of the perfect setting to be having this conversation. So Karina's background is in uh, philosophy and psychology and human anatomy and I feel like you have this uh, amazing appetite for asking some of the big questions in life, which is kind of why I wanted to have this conversation. And I actually remember talking to one of my friends during the training and he was saying how, uh, your meditation classes are almost like cheating because you have this, this like wonderful (laughs) voice and it's so grounding and so calming that meditation is, is kind of easy when you, when you teach it. Um, so really grateful for you kind of taking the time to do this and agreeing to be my podcast guinea pig guest. So thank you very much. And this conversation might kind of jump around a little bit, but let's just dive in and see where it goes. Awesome. So first question, um, kind of going back to Karina as as a child, do you remember what you were curious about when you were growing up? I kind of have this image of you as this kind of like adventurous, curious kid.
0: One of the things that I remember from when I was little is that my mum was really good at giving me books mm-hmm. and she would give me books on every different subject. And even at school, if we were uh, given a book to read for English and it would be the abridged version, mm. she would take the abridged version off me and give me the <laughs> full version and be like, you will read this. Tough love. <laughs> yeah. But I really loved it. And um And I feel like it was a, like a good broad, uh, Mm. informal education in a way. Um, Mm. so she at some point in time also would give me books on philosophy and that kind of thing for my like age range Mm. and so i remember sitting under what we would call the philosopher's tree at home (laughs) sometimes with some of my friends (laughs) and we would you know pretend that we were grown-ups and ask ask these big questions about life but we also lived on an acreage so we had about 12 acres and horses and you know chickens and sheep and that sort of thing and um so I would kind of roam around on the the weekends and yeah. I was pretty introverted. Okay. Um, yeah, but I had had those things going on and then I danced and that sort of thing as well.
1: Yeah, I feel like that explains a lot, actually, <laughs> <I was laughs> thinking about it. But OK, so and then fast forwarding a little bit, um, I know that you studied philosophy and mm-hmm. um, also taught in international security studies, if I'm getting that yes. right. And I'm curious kind of first what that Experiences w- w- was like for you and also how you um, ended up being kind of cooled onto this yoga journey and what that what was that like like what's yeah. the story there
0: when i first went to university i actually did an advertising degree hmm. and i just fell into it really it wasn't something that i was particularly interested in but i think at the time i didn't have a better idea and i didn't want to get left behind by taking a year off and mm. figuring out who i was yeah yeah, yeah sure And um, in my advertising degree, my minor was in psychology. And when I finished that degree, I couldn't think of a job that I would want to do in that field of advertising. Mm. So I thought I'd just go back to university and do psychology because that Mm. really interested me. Mm. And so I did that and I did uh, philosophy and psychology together.
1: I did the same thing with economics as well. Okay, cool.
0: (laughs) Um, And I... I had the sense at the end of my psychology degree that I didn't want to be a psychologist. I wanted to help people in some way, and I was curious about what made people tick, but Mm. I didn't know what that would look like, and Mm. so I I ended up taking a year off then, Mm. and I went to work on a community development project for a few months in Mm. South America. And I came out of that experience feeling like it had been far more valuable for me as Mm. a Westerner going in there than it had in any tangible sense for the communities that we were working in. So then I thought, maybe I'll go back to university again and um, do a master's in international relations so I could sort of understand that sphere a little bit better. And I remember my dad saying to me that uh, an international relations master's was like an arts degree of the postgraduate <laughs> world. It was far too, broad. Yeah, I <laughs> far too broad to be useful. And so I was looking for ways that <laughs> I could specialise a bit more, which yeah. is how I came across this international security right, studies okay. thing. Okay. And it was in the wake of 9-11 and mm. I was reading a lot about those kind of broader Mm. security issues at the time and I think it piqued everybody's interest and Mm. so I went back and did that degree and I got offered a a job out of that while I was doing my PhD Mm. um, in international security studies and Mm. it was always something that really interested me Mm. intellectually but it was never something that I kind of felt in my bones Mm. as like a burning curiosity Mm. Um,
1: and was there a moment you think so how did yoga kind of fit into that picture and was there a moment where you felt like um was it kind of a big decision for you to kind of move away from that world or was it kind of like a a kind of ongoing process and and
0: it was it was a big decision and an ongoing process when i was doing my masters i went to my first yoga class and i instantly loved it Mm. and um it quickly became you know this obsession as it is for Mm. for people often and I kept doing yoga while I was working at the university and um, a few years later I I was at a, a studio and they were running their first teacher training program and mm-hmm. I just went out of curiosity because I wanted to be around yoga more, mm-hmm. not because I wanted to teach or anything like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. then at the end of that training program, I got offered a, a job mm-hmm. at the studio. And I don't think I would have sought out a teaching a yoga teaching job had it not sort of fallen in my lap. and mm-hmm. so I was just part-time in the evenings on the weekends teaching classes Mm. and I did that for a few years and then I actually came to Bali to do a level two training mm -hmm. and it wasn't until then that I was like actually this is something that really lights me up in a way that my other job doesn't but it took me a while to be okay with that because I come from Mm. a family of like educators and i I somewhere intuited along the way that a good job was a serious job. Yeah. And it's not necessarily something that any of them said to me, but I wasn't okay with the idea of being a yoga teacher. Yeah. And so it took me a while to be okay with it. Mm. And once I was, it was a very easy decision to mm.
1: make. And I, I can imagine if your family kind of stole abridged books from you and <laughs> <laughs> gave you that gave you the full version I can see <laughs> how that kind of sense of getting like a, a proper job that I, is a yeah. pressure I think a lot of you know, a lot of students feel and I really remember feeling quite viscerally yes. um, myself and studying economics all of my friends would go into go into the city go into London and get these kind of very proper seeming jobs yeah and it's just there is a lot of pressure at that age
0: there's a lot of pressure to know who you are and to know mm. what would light you up and what mm. can sustain your interest over the course of a working lifetime yeah, and
1: completely.
0: I feel like it's unreasonable in a way <laughs> yeah it is i think
1: 20 should be for um experimentation and kind yes. of finding a place Absolutely. so kind of using that as a as a bridge i'm intrigued by something that you said about how you felt studying philosophy which you said was almost too abstract but yoga kind of helped you kind of experience those answers yes. and put it into practice could you tell me a little bit about what you meant by that and yeah
0: I always loved philosophy. And on the one hand, I loved the abstract nature of it. Like Mm. I love those, Thought experiments that you can do, mm. and I love kind of working through ideas logically. And I know that plenty of people don't like that at all, mm. um, but I really did. And yet, I never felt that any of the philosophies that I studied had any direct application to my own life. Mm-hmm. And so it was something that was just like an intellectual curiosity, mm. but not something that. Um,
1: which which fields of philosophy did you did you study?
0: Um, I mean. I've, studied a broad range of things from like quite classic stuff to even like the philosophy of artificial intelligence and oh, wow. you know <laughs> stuff like that so it was like i didn't sort of focus on on any one thing in particular but what i found in yoga was a philosophy that's very much geared towards helping people live good lives and be good humans mm. and mm, I um that. it's really practical and tangible yep. and the stuff that's in there, when you get into it, it almost seems obvious and it seems like stuff that you're not hearing for the first time but maybe you're remembering Remember it. from somewhere deep within you. Yeah, sure. And for me, that was when everything clicked and it now is is sort of the litmus, Litmus test for everything that I do. I feel like Mm. there's nothing in my life. That's not informed by Yoga in some way shape or form.
1: Yeah, I know I love that and um, are there any kind of personal Insights or kind of not necessarily moments of revelation But things that you've that you've remembered more kind of as that journey has progressed is anything that you like You really didn't understand or have a grasp of when you were in your 20s or
0: in some sense I think that it's like the cumulative total of small insights that end mm. up, you know, making big transformation. But mm. I do remember the very first aha moment I had. It was actually in a Bikram yoga class of all the different types of yoga that it would, you know, big Bikram, <laughs> the, the least philosophically When you're drenched inclined in sweat. To, yeah, and exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember there was this pose that was a bit of an arch nemesis of mine. And I felt mm. like I had the strength to be able to, get into the pose and yet I couldn't. Mm. And I had a, a couple of teachers say to me like you have the strength to get into this pose why can't you? Mm. I'm like god if I knew why I couldn't I would right. I would be doing it. I remember setting up for this pose one day and I realized that I was kind of thinking about how hard the pose was and how heavy my legs felt in it and how you know how troublesome these things were. And for some reason on that particular day, I had a shift and I thought, well, actually, what would this pose feel like if I could actually get into it? And where Mm. would my weight be placed then? And what would my legs feel like then? And just shifting into a different mindset Mm. meant that I instantly got into that pose. It Mm. was like a piece of cake. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't understand how it happened. Mm. But all of a sudden, something that 10 minutes beforehand had been out of my reach was now easily within my reach and the only thing that had shifted was the way that I thought about it and that was such a huge thing for me and it carried me through the first few years of my yoga practice a lot every Mm. time I came up against something that I felt like I couldn't do I had had that experience of realizing that a mindset shift would put it within my reach
1: yeah that's such a powerful belief to have with you because you can almost apply it to obviously in yoga but obviously in in the real world too that's that's amazing. And yeah, I'm, the other kind of, I guess, a different way to ask that question is I know that when I, when I have a big decision in my life or I'm kind of feeling a little bit uncertain about what's do next, I will often be quite strategic in terms yes. of like making pros and cons lists, doing lots of research and trying to map out what either path would look like. Mm-hmm. But something that I've been learning a lot more recently and partly thanks to yoga and to the people I've met here is kind of tuning into my intuition a bit more. Yes, And I'm curious if that's something that you've experienced as well and has kind of followed following your intuition kind of led you to this, yeah. this place?
0: That's such a big question and yes is the answer. Um, before I was yogically inclined, I'd had the experience on enough occasions to uh, look out for it in my life and I'd sort of realised that whenever I thought I knew the right direction for me to head Mm. if if it was purely like a heady decision Mm. I would often find that I would come up against roadblocks Mm -hmm. because what I wanted the decision or the outcome to be was not what the outcome should actually be and if I actually just waited I would often find that a door would open and it wouldn't be the door that I expected but if I was aware enough and stepped Through it, even if I didn't know what was on the other side, it would end up being the right decision for me. So I could sort of come up against these roadblocks all the time, or I could just wait. Mm. And when something yielded, Mm. I could lean into to that. Mm. And it's something that is—I feel like it's the the broader arc of my own yoga journey as a student, Mm. as a and as a teacher, Mm. learning how to um, be in my body more and understand that my thoughts and my emotions mm-hmm. live in my body mm-hmm. and my body is not just something that's an appendage to my mind mm. and it's funny because I had these two tracks when I was smaller mm. of the you know the philosopher's tree and all of these books and I also danced. Dancing, sure. and so I had this body awareness thing going on and And I loved dancing and I got a lot of sort of nourishment out of it, Mm. but I never joined mind and body together. Mm. So my yoga journey personally, is in joining mind and body Mm. together and realizing that there are ways that the body knows that the mind has not yet caught up with Mm. and even if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective you know like way back you know 1.2 billion years ago or whenever it was when we were just these funny organisms attached to the floor of the ocean we were a (laughs) digestive system with arms and then you know like the nervous system and the skeletal system built after that and you know the the brain developed after that and so to think that we're a brain with a digestive system in a body is it's not quite backwards. right yeah, yeah. we're yeah, like yeah. A, a digestive system with a brain in a body and if you think about the area of the gut where our gut feelings come from uh-huh. and that kind of thing uh-huh. it's like the oldest system uh-huh. or the oldest way of knowing that we have
1: mm-hmm. which it feels like modern science is kind of catching up with now yeah. at the moment which i find super interesting so another question that i i'd love to kind of get your perspective on is at my, at my previous role at Escape the City, we thought a lot about how to. Um, what did success mean and how do you redefine ambition for uh, often young people? And I was curious to hear how your sense of ambition, which it felt like you've, you felt quite acutely when you were at university and kind of wanting to make an impact in the world or going to South America and kind of being really useful there. Um, how has your sense of ambition kind of changed? And, and also related to that do you feel there's a tension between kind of appreciating what we have like here and now and like the the beautiful you know the birds in the background and and all of this with that sense of like wanting to kind of strive to be the best versions of ourselves kind of making those yoga poses and and all of that how do you how do you think about that's a big question i realize yeah how would you
0: um i think my uh relationship to ambition has changed Mm. I think now that I've been doing yoga for a while, success for me is more measured by how many layers of myself I can strip back. I think that when I was at the university, for example, ambition and success are pegged to external markers, you know, like your level of seniority or your The house or the car that you have or your disposable income or you know those kind of things Mm -hmm. and i think in those environments so often we feel like we have to mask who we really are Mm. in order to fit well in a competitive uh environment Mm. and i think that that's why so often we have those external markers of success. Mm. And yet when we get them somehow they feel empty mm. because they're pegged onto us from the outside, mm-hmm. um, not brought up from mm. within us. Mm. And so when it comes to this you know, intuition journey and that relationship between the mind and the body, I really feel like all anybody wants to be able to do is to shed the layers of armour that we've put on each Mm. time we've had a lesson that who we are is not okay. Mm. And now for me, success is finding a way to be as fully who I really am as possible. And in the process, hopefully opening up a permission field for students who I get to teach so that they can do the same thing in their own lives mm. so and I think in especially in the field of yoga the more you're able to connect with yourself the better you're able to connect with others the mm. richer and more meaningful your relationships are mm. and and I think that that's something that people are realizing that they crave more and more so I still have ambition in that regard but mm. it's more like an ambition of like how much of this shit can I yeah, um, yeah. Discard yeah. so that I can be as freely as possible who yeah. I am.
1: I know, I, I love that. And I guess it's almost like going on a kind of an inner journey and an inner exploration as opposed to trying to be recognized in like the external world. Yeah. Um, that, no, I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: I also think that that then becomes like what the yogic version of maybe success would be, would be more closely pegged to Dharma. Mm -hmm. Like what is the reason that you are here on this planet? Mm. And what's the thing that is uniquely yours that you can offer to others as an act of service?
1: Mm. What are the gifts that you can bring forth to the world? Yeah. Um, I love that. And it's certainly something that the, I think the yoga teacher training last year really kind of sparked in me as well. Yes. Or at least got me to kind of take some, more of these questions a bit a bit more seriously and I was in, in doing my homework for this, this interview I was like reading through some of my notes and like all of the, the things that I had written down and I must have been such an annoying student like I think I just asked so many questions. You were brilliant and because you
0: asked so many questions. <laughs> I could just
1: see the frustration on, on Octavia's face sometimes I was like ah um, but one of the things that I, I highlighted that I thought was just a phrase I'd not heard before that you used in one of the I think it was the, one of the anatomy classes was this idea of kinesthetic literacy. Mm-hmm. And that in the 21st century, it tends to be quite crap if we're just in front of a screen all day. Yeah. Um, so I really love that. And could you just like describe a little bit about what it is? Yeah. And, um...
0: So kinesthetic literacy for me is, uh, it's just another form of intelligence really. Mm. And it's an intelligence that um, we feel through the body. So if you think back uh, to you know, earlier times in our evolution, we had a very direct relationship with the natural environment and we would be hunting and gathering and we would probably have a more direct relationship with natural predators and and that kind of thing so the ways that the body had to know were more keenly developed you know if we wanted to navigate we would need to be able to or mm. hunt or you know we'd need to be able to sense things about our environment that aren't intellectual in nature Mm. and so now we're so disconnected from the natural world we spend most of our time sitting in chairs be that at a desk or in the car or on the couch and we're so connected to our devices that we have this visual range that's about 30 centimeters in front (laughs) of us at any given time and we are in temperature-controlled rooms mm-hmm. and in places that have artificial lighting, and that ability that we have to navigate the world through our body mm. is something that we've lost, and that we need to remember. I don't think lost forever by any stretch of the imagination. It's there somewhere in our cells, mm. um, but it's something that we, I, I think, is important for us to redevelop.
1: Mm, completely, and that makes me think of. Um, I was doing a, a freediving course mm. recently, and. One of the instructors was talking about these p- ancient polynesian tribes who could not only kind of free dive down to depths to kind of get their food but they they actually crossed the pacific ocean They think kind of only using this kind of intuitive feel for the the wind and the tides and everything all that knowledge that had accumulated yeah and it's you know something that we struggle with even with it, all of our technology and all of our um you know developed worlds so i think that's super interesting and the the other thing that i circled um kind of on the on the note of freediving was that you said we typically breathe in about half a liter of air day to day but during a deep inhalation we can take in six times more air and that just that blew my mind like mm. we're using a sixth of our kind of lung capacity on a yeah. day-to-day basis
0: you know um, we we don't use that much of our breathing capacity most of the time we don't need to because we so kind of s- static and sedentary but also i think we um in an effort to numb how we feel sometimes one of the first ways that we do that is uh, by uh, restricting our breath mm. and if we're stressed a lot we tend to breathe um just with the upper portion of our lungs. And so the muscles around our ribs and the muscles sort of in our lower abdomen, they become much tighter and then it becomes much harder to get a full breath of Mm. of air. So um, if we can learn to retrain our breathing capacity in a way that's a bit more skillful, um, we'll feel more Mm. on both ends of the spectrum, but we'll have the capacity to weather those um, feelings with a little bit more grace and ease. Mm. Um, And... From the yoga tradition, the belief is that the inhale in particular is a way that we draw life in and energy into the body. Mm. So the greater our uh, breathing capacity, the, the greater our capacity to um, pull you know, prana or chi or whatever you want to call it into the body and, mm. and be able to direct that at will mm. to you know live out whatever our purpose is. Mm.
1: And you definitely feel it on a kind of day-to-day basis yes. if you're really taking full breath, you just have more, more energy, just more kind of enthusiasm for everything. Um, I've definitely felt that in my own life. Um, The other thing that I just wanted to touch on was, I feel like the, I feel like the tools that yoga gave me and the things that, that you guys taught last summer, um, have really helped me to navigate my own kind of last, last six months. And I've been going through quite an intense journey of, of grief and I think to me, one of the, um, one of the real insights was that in the, in the beginning in particular, I I felt like I had to be, had to be strong Mm. and I had to, um, kind of, lots of people were saying, you know, you know, stay strong, you're, you're coping really well. But I think for me, it was more learning how to surrender to some of those, to some of the pain and some of those really deep feelings. And I think that 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 idea of kind of being strong is really hardwired into us as particularly as a guy yes um, from a very young age and yeah I'm just curious to hear how you think about um the parallels between learning to surrender into a pose in mm-hmm. say a class versus surrendering into some of those maybe kind of deeply Felt or maybe repressed traumas and emotions in people's in people's lives.
0: Yeah, I think they're one and the same thing. You know, there's that saying in yoga how you how you do yoga is how you do life. And I didn't know that. uh, Well, now you do. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And so those you know, if we uh, find that we come onto our yoga mat and we have resistance to challenging times on the mat, then we usually resist challenging times in life as well. I'm reading a book at the moment it's called The Language of Emotions mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating for me because she she talks about the tendency that so many of us have to think of emotions as problematic or as weaknesses mm-hmm. and her take on emotions is that they're not problematic and they're not weaknesses at all. They're sources of information that we can use to navigate our environment more skillfully. And just because an emotion is strong and difficult, doesn't mean it's something that we need to resist or overcome. Mm. It's giving us important information about the things that hold meaning for us and the things that we value. And, mm. you know, it's giving, they're giving us opportunities to understand and re- release experiences that we've had. Mm. You know, she talks about um, sadness specifically as um, the emotion that allows us to let go and that we often will only call it sadness whenever it reaches a certain certain threshold point. Mm. But we can also see the evidence of sadness in any small moment, even when we don't feel sad, Mm. where we feel called to let go of something that no longer serves us. Mm. So I actually think that the stronger thing to do is to find a way to be strong enough on the inside that you feel okay with being vulnerable on the outside Mm. rather than feeling so vulnerable on the inside that you've got to put that shell around you to protect that vulnerability on Mm. the outside Mm. Um, and I I think that practicing on the mat in yoga is so brilliant because it provides you with a safe container inside which you can Mm -hmm. experiment with strategies that allow you to meet your emotions Mm. as friends Mm. before you take them out into the real world where they have to come into contact with other people, <laughs> where those ex- experiences can be
1: amplified. Yeah, you've got a bit less control. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. And I it reminds me of um something that Brene Brown talks about in her TED talk about vulnerability. Yes. And she says how it's how it's the birthplace of courage. Yes. And for me, that was a real, a real turning point because You know, as someone who previously thought, you know, vulnerability is kind of weakness and kind of something that you should kind of, um, or at least not show to everyone, um, this idea that you can't be courageous or make a courageous decision or have a courageous conversation without at the same time being vulnerable. is just a huge, a huge shift. Yes. And I think it can be so, it can be applied to so many different areas of life. Um, And I really love that. And I also love what you said about emotions being... I guess it's almost like the feedback It's kind of like a feedback leap that you're, if you pay attention to them, it's like, it's telling you something. Yeah. And if you just accept it as feedback, you can then maybe act differently next time or be like, oh, that's interesting. It's
0: just like a traffic light in a way, you Mm. know, like green is go, red is stop, orange is sort of slow down and you're you're
1: pissed off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So,
0: you know, you you wouldn't necessarily, well, maybe the traffic light isn't a a great example, but you know, like you wouldn't necessarily rage against the fact that traffic lights exist. You would just sort of use them to help you navigate the intersection Mm. um, safely. (laughs) And and I think emotions are there to serve the same purpose.
1: That's cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, and so the other thing that I I read that you've been volunteering for the Australian uh, a Mental Health Foundation or yeah, the Yoga Foundation the yoga in Foundation. Australia. Yeah. And yeah. people who are kind of going through depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I I've certainly been thinking about a lot recently. I've several of my friends kind have of really suffered from quite intense anxiety. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people I know have been through depressive episodes at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear, firstly, kind of how you work with these with these people and what the impacts you've kind of seen from some of their yeah. experiences. Like, how does it affect them?
0: So um, my role at the Yoga Foundation is just in evaluating some of their programs. So... Um, what the yoga foundation does is work with people who have the symptoms of uh, depression and anxiety and who are experiencing hardship. Mm. So they have a range of different programs. They work with homeless people. Um, They... work with uh mental health units in uh, some hospitals in australia and and a range of other programs so i get the data from those programs and and i i look at that rather than teaching people directly Mm -hmm. um and from the data from the programs that i've looked at um because a lot of the people will come into a yoga program for a a short period of time Mm -hmm. while they're receiving other care and services, there's not the the long range data that I've seen, but there seems to be a fairly consistent um, pattern that uh, a regular yoga practice will allow people to feel their body and Mm -hmm. therefore allow, give them more tools to help them regulate how they feel Mm -hmm. and will help people relax and, even sometimes um, give them a bigger vocabulary that they can use to explain how they feel. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So um, the guy who uh, started the Yoga Foundation, um, Michael Demanicor in Australia, he did his PhD on uh, yoga as a treatment for depression and anxiety. Mm. And um, he he found that uh, I think particularly for depression, yoga was um, an effective tool in the toolbox for, Mm. for, for managing that kind of, um, thing.
1: Mm. And do you think that it's related to, I I know, say in, um, say in a yin class where there's lots of long holds, um, and I remember you talking during the training about how some of our emotions or feelings can be almost like held in the, in the fascia of the, of the tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that that's maybe how yoga is able to, help some of these people in that it just gives them a safe environment to kind of feel some of those uh, maybe kind of repressed emotions?
0: Yes, I think that it does that. I think it connects people to their breath, which I think is a really important Mm. sort of tool for, you know, a coping strategy. I think it, again, just gives people a safe container inside which they can explore what's happening uh, to to themselves. And there's certainly um, plenty of research that shows that Uh, the way that we carry our body has an an almost immediate effect on our emotional state. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another great TED Talk, and I can't remember what. Amy
1: Cuddy.
0: Is it Amy Cuddy? And she talks about the power poses and that sort of thing that you yeah. know you can just spend two minutes in an open upright position and yeah. it will increase
1: changes your hormones your testosterone exactly
0: mm-hmm. testosterone increases cortisol decreases so you feel more confident you feel less stressed and mm-hmm. then the converse is also true if you put mm-hmm. yourself in a slumped position mm-hmm. and you'll feel more stressed and less confident and yeah <laughs> and i think and initially um, those kind of uh, experiences are held in our nervous system in a temporary way. But mm. if the experiences that we have of being stressed or lack of confidence or, or whatever it happens to be are chronic for us, over time they'll stop just being held in our nervous system and they'll start to be held in our fascial system as well. Right. And that's when they become those chronic postural distortions sure. that, and, and, and through that chronic behavioural and emotional patterns.
1: Sure, that makes sense. Um, okay, so shifting gears a little bit. I, uh, I absolutely love how you've said that yoga is a veritable feast of technologies for exploring consciousness. Yeah. Um, and I also love this analogy that you drew between our egos being like this home that we can come back to. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean by the amazing phrase, veritable feast of technologies and kind of what that means for you?
0: Yes. Um, consciousness is such a big word. And I feel like it's too big of a concept to understand or touch in any meaningful way. It's like one of those abstract things that's lovely to think about and you're like, well, I don't know how that applies in my own life. Mm -hmm. But what traditional hatha yoga has is all of these different tools and technologies that are very bodily Mm -hmm. um, to begin with that help us unravel our mind and our ego Mm -hmm. so all of the ways that we see ourselves as separate within the world Mm. and that gradually open us to the possibility of an aspect of our awareness that might exist beyond that um and so their breathing techniques their uh techniques for uh harnessing the power of the mind, their techniques that uh, we explore through the body. And it's cool because it's also experiential. Mm-hmm. So you can feel skeptical about any one of the weird and wonderful things that we do in yoga because there's plenty of stuff, that, of stuff that is really weird and also <laughs> really wonderful. Yep. But you can then put all of that stuff to the test in a way that's a little bit scientific in nature yeah,
1: completely.
0: and you you can see in your own body and in your own experience mm. if this stuff works or it doesn't mm. so i think that's nice because you don't have to take your teacher's word for it mm. you can you can start the experiment in your own body mm-hmm. and see what grows from mm. that
1: i i love that and i think that's actually kind of what drew me to yoga or at least drew me deeper mm. once i kind of got this initial curiosity because i I was very kind of skeptical of taking potentially dogmatic beliefs yes. and kind of religion, all that, all those kinds of things. But I felt like yoga and also um, a lot of Buddhist philosophy as well. They they just say, look, this is a a series of techniques or methods that you can try and practice in your own life. And if if you notice an effect, then that's great, and you can keep doing it. If not, then you don't have to. You don't have to. It's it's almost like the Buddha was this kind of the original, one of the original scientists, and Mm. he had this kind of scientific method, but he was using his own introspection as his kind of tools. And it feels like from the very shallow reading I've been doing recently, it feels like some of neuroscience Mm. and some, or at least areas in modern science are kind of catching up with some of these fairly profound insights that the yoga tradition and uh, the Buddha claimed, you know, maybe two plus thousand years ago.
0: Yeah, I find that really exciting that there seems to be a meeting in the middle of these esoteric sort Mm -hmm. of teachings and these more concrete musings of modern-day science. Mm. And I love that they seem to be overlapping. Mm. And um, I'm excited to see what ends up growing from that. Mm. And it's a really profound thing to think about also that 5,000 years ago or however many thousand years ago, Uh, these people who are working with the medium of their own body without Mm. the benefit of modern technology Mm. were able to arrive at these insights just through the body. And if you think that that's possible and that then opens up the the immense potential that lies within each of us if we can just Mm. figure out how to harness it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, completely. Um the other the other thing that we were talking about I think before we hit record here was this idea of knowledge only being a rumor until it lives in the muscle. And I think that I cer- I certainly am very good at having these concepts or these maybe abstract ideas in my head and thinking that I understand them, but it's such a it's such a long way sometimes to go from the head to the heart. Mm. And do you think this is something that yoga can really help with and particularly when it comes to teaching as well we were were kind of talking about the context of how do you how do you learn new things and i feel like it's so important to experience something and literally try and have this knowledge live in the muscle yes Um, like how do you think about this
0: for me um intellectual knowledge that lives in the mind Mm -hmm. tends to come from the outside and on the one hand it's so cool to have so much access to so much knowledge and on the other hand in a subtle sense it can be disempowering in a way because it can give rise to this feeling that unless it's knowledge that I've gleaned from outside of me Mm. it's not worthy of paying attention to Mm. and that's something that I've definitely struggled with myself this Mm. idea that knowledge that i get from other people is more valuable than the knowledge that i get from within myself Mm. but i think that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom Mm -hmm. and i think that what is contained within the body is wisdom Mm. and sometimes it can be jarring or challenging Mm. to make the shift between the knowledge of the mind and the wisdom of the body Mm. but i feel that ultimately when you can translate that mental knowledge into bodily wisdom, that's when you have the real power to transmit knowing mm. to other people. Because I think, you know, in yoga we talk about transmission sometimes mm-hmm. and some teachers have that ability to transmit just by being in their presence an idea or a feeling or an insight or a – uh, you know, some kind of transcendental experience and you think, gosh, how does that happen? And I mean, I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, but my sense of it is that they they have that so deep within their own bodies that there is like a, a mm. way of transmission that can happen mm. that way.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So could it potentially be the same, um, almost the same piece of knowledge, but they found this way to... Um, through their own experience really feel it and really understand it. Yes. On a kind of I I guess um a parallel that I would draw is say intellectually, um most of us know that we're we're gonna die someday. Yeah. And death, you know, death is like it, it's gonna happen. But it's it's completely different to lose someone close to you. Yes. And or, or really or have a near-death experience yourself. Yes. And I think for me maybe that's that kind of captures that chasm between the intellectual knowledge and the wisdom that you're talking about.
0: Definitely. My um, big project as a teacher at the moment is really trying to figure out ways that I can put knowledge as, as a felt sense in people's bodies. Mm. And um, I'm always trying to figure out when I stand up in front of people how I can give people a, body exp- a bodily experience of an idea that might have been abstract to them. Mm previously and to be able to do that you have to be able to feel it in your own body and it's such a fascinating thing to explore. Mm. And I think that everything is more meaningful when you can feel it. Yep. Um so if you can walk away from an experience feeling it with every fibre of your being that's infinitely more profound an experience than being like, oh yes, I believe that because it makes sense mm. logically. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, um, you you do a great job of it, and <laughs> I went to so your Yin class yesterday. You talked about the concept of Japanese concept of kaizen, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and I was um, I, I partly I thought about it in terms of my own progression with yoga and being able to get into more physical poses which were previously like inaccessible. But I was also thinking about how in how in the startup world and how in life lots of people tend to be very kind of goal orientated yes as opposed to focusing on the process and i love that idea of kaizen and that if you just kind of really hone down on the process and give that your full attention then the goals will kind of take care of themselves
0: yes i think that you can see it in uh, yoga as well because yoga talks a lot about intention, right? And the importance of intention, and like sun, sankalpa, kind yes. of having a
1: firm firm resolve. A firm resolve. I did my exactly. homework. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's exactly what intention is, you know, that commitment to behaving in a certain way in the moment, mm-hmm. in the hope that it will be fruitful in terms of whatever your goals might be in the future. But mm-hmm. whereas a goal will be like, I want to be able to do ten push-ups. Mm-hmm. An intention might be something related to the strength or uh, mental steel you might bring to the practice of you know uh, some kind of a strength practice yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that there's a, a fundamental difference between the two and I think that the intention or that you know the, this Kaizen sort of attitude is yeah. more nourishing and experience also <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool cool yeah. um, are there any are there any other kind of um kind of untranslatable or words that don't have any direct translation into English, words either in in Sanskrit or or Japanese or that resonate with you or that you kind of think about often? Similar to Kaizen or Sankalpa? Um, Well,
0: I mean, it it does have a direct translation into English, but it's something that I think about a lot um, in yoga. And it's a concept that I really love, ishta Devata. Mm. Um, which is uh, a recognition that each of us has our own intimate connection with the bigness of the universe. Oh, wow. Um, we it's... should
1: definitely have a word for that. Anything that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I it's that. so
0: beautiful because, I mean, yoga is designed to be a psychospiritual technology that mm-hmm. is meant to be non-deno- non-denominational in nature. And it doesn't say that you have to believe in a particular kind of God at all. Mm but there's still this sense of divinity very strongly contained within its philosophy. And one of the ethical principles that, or uh, personal observances that sits within the classical tradition of yoga is this idea of surrendering yourself to the divine. And I feel like this word divine or God can be problematic for people because Mm -hmm. we all have these personal associations with it. And we're in this age of like spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so how do you surrender to the divine? And I think what Ishta Devata does is recognize that for some people, the divine is nature or Mm. community or whatever that thing is in our life that takes us beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's an acknowledgement of the fact that that journal journey is very personal for all of us. And the way that we walk that path doesn't have to conform to the way that anyone else does.
1: Mm, I love that. Um, Me too. It reminds me of, there's a really beautiful podcast called on being, Mm -hmm. um, And one of the interviews, uh, there was a story that came up about this conference, I think happened in the eighties with all of these spiritual leaders and they couldn't decide over what to call kind of God, like Allah or Mm -hmm. um, or Jesus, all of these different things. And I think it was a a Buddhist that said, um, he spoke last and he said, why do not we just call it the great mystery? Love that. And for me, that kind of sums up that, feeling because i i've had experiences in my life whether through through surfing or sometimes through meditation where you do feel like you you almost feel connected to the world around you or to the ocean and you kind of lose that sense of the ego just kind of like quietens down for a bit and you you lose yourself in it um and that's i think it's something that i've tried to search for in my own life as well and trying to find those little those pinpricks of um of losing or turning down the volume on the mental chatter and kind of losing yourself in that moment. So that's beautiful. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> um, okay. So a couple of quick fire questions. I, I've been stalking you on Instagram and I love, <laughs> I love your, your kind of very um, succinct and wise kind of posts that you, that you share once a week. And the question was, if someone gave you some some money and two years of time to write a book. What would the title be? What would the book? What would the book be on? What would you research?
0: I have no idea what the title would be, but in line with you know a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, I have this sense that some of the really beautiful and profound teachings of yoga are very abstract. this idea that we are now and have always been whole and connected to everything. And I think that most people would say, gosh, that's a really interesting idea and I don't feel whole or connected. In fact, most of the time I feel quite separate and disconnected from everything else and on some level that I feel that emptiness. Mm. What is fascinating to me is that when you dive into the body and look at the body on a cellular level, that wholeness and connection is built into the structure of our being. Mm. And I would love to, and I think you can extrapolate outwards and sort of understand that, you know, the body contains emotions within it and the body stores our life history within it and the body stores our connections or disconnections and and all of that kind of thing. So we are actually on a physical level, whole and connected and have always been. Mm. And so the book that I would love to write would be finding a way to join that spiritual teaching with a bodily experience.
1: Mm. Wow. <laughs> I feel like, are there any publishers listening to this? Because I feel like that, that would be, that would go down well. Um, man, I love that. Okay. And on a very, on a very, I guess, a related note for people listening to this, many of whom might have been to a couple of yoga classes, but probably don't have a very deep practice. What's a, what's a simple thing that people can do in their own or implement in their own day-to-day lives that could make a big difference, you think?
0: I think just every now and again, stopping what you're doing, planting your two feet on the floor and taking one mindful breath. Because something I see in class all the time is, and it's a cue that I overuse because I love, is just take this next one breath without any commentary or critique. Because the idea that you can just wipe your mind clear for a 90-minute class is too big a hurdle to Mm. overcome. But you can do it one breath at a time Mm -hmm. and you can renew that commitment with each successive breath. Mm. And it just takes one deep breath to reset, to melt the stress away, to calm the mind down, to Mm. release those emotions. And I feel like I love that just because it's – so profound in its simplicity.
1: Mm, yeah, I love that. And it, you actually said um, a few days ago, I think it was, "Take this breath like it's the last breath in the world."
0: Yeah, sometimes like the first and, and only breath in yeah, the universe. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that was it. And that, like, yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to. Yeah. And no, um, yeah, it really works. I, yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so we're kind of close to wrapping up here. There's just a couple more, couple more questions. Mm-hmm. So one of one of my favourite passages, or something that I've been thinking about a fair bit recently, is from um, Rilke, and he says this, this wonderful thing. He says, do, do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Mm. And so I guess my question for you is what is a question that you feel like you're living at the moment that you are kind of living your way into the answer for?
0: Great question. <laughs> I think it would be like how to, how to be more of myself. And so I think there would, has probably been a time in the past where I was impatient to get there and um, and I find that these days I'm a little more willing to sit in the question mm. and enjoy that the the slow ride of you know peeling back those layers like we were talking back befo- mm. talking about before.
1: Mm. That's beautiful. Um and then just to say, so just to close, there's a a passage that I, I saw you you share a while ago and I know that it, uh, it means a lot to you and I feel like it's very relevant to the conversation that we've just been mm. having. So um yeah, if you feel all right with, okay, uh, with reading, and maybe kind of a bit of context about what it means to you. Thanks.
0: Yes. So this is from a book by uh, an author called Michael Stone. And the book uh, is called Yoga for a World Out of Balance. And it's the very first book that I ever read on yoga philosophy. Um, and he was such a beautiful writer because I think that he really had the capacity to um, make alive uh, ancient philosophy in a way that are uh, really contemporary. Anyway, so this is my absolute favorite um, passage ever about yoga. If my body is made primarily of water and animated by the breath, is it possible to call the water in the body mine and the air outside of my lungs the world? When I breathe, how far into the nostrils or respiratory system does the breath have to flow before it's part of my body? If I eat a piece of bread, at what point is it no longer bread and now a part of me? Where does my ear end and sound begin? Where do my words end and your mind begin? Where do thoughts begin and end in the mind? When I pay close attention to the workings of the body, I'm taken immediately into the mind and the ways in which I perceive and feel the body. Furthermore, I notice that the body can't be separated from the natural world except in my imagination. And so it becomes difficult to talk about a body practice as separate from a world practice. Like most spiritual practices, the aim of yoga is not perfect mastery over technique or the ability to memorize scriptures, but rather the activity of bringing one's insights and sensitivities into the world through action. When I tune into the fact that the body and world are in deep continuity with one another, when I stand up after formal practice and look into the smoggy skyline, I feel called to take action. Yoga occurs when our inner work manifests in the world around us. The world of mind and body in the non-dual tradition of yoga is inseparable from the larger world of the birdsong towering pines in old growth groves, slow and aging rivers or industrial exhaust. The interconnected reality we call yoga orients us toward a mode of perception that sees reality as an interconnected web in which our own small storyline is only a part and certainly not the most prominent.
1: Mm, That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And to those listening, we will wrap the show with that.
0: Thank you very much. I enjoyed
1: this. Thanks so much for listening. What did you think? The question that I'd love to leave you with to take with you into your day is this. What is the project or creative endeavor that you've been putting off? And what might be a way to start it before you feel totally ready? If you have any thoughts on this or suggestions for future guests, please drop me an email at johnny at curioushumans.com. That's J-O-N-N-Y at curioushumans.com. I'd love to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. All right, thanks for listening. And here's a preview of what to expect in the next episode. We tend to think of vulnerability as as a weakness. um, And we tend to think of it in self-indulgent terms, which is me telling everyone about everything that
0: scares me or uh, everything I'm not happy about. And uh, instead of thinking of it as a kind of gravitational field, uh, an edge between uh, what you know about yourself and what you don't, what you know about your world and what you don't know,